Now, title of my message this morning is little bit worrying, or some of you may not like, or maybe some of you may feel a little bit sad, but I'm not here to make you sad, but I want to really encourage you this morning. And the title is Dangerous, Disastrous, and Deadly End. Dangerous, disastrous, and deadly end. And we are going to look Matthew chapter 7 from verse 21 to 23. That's the main uh, verses for my message this morning. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23. And as Edward read Matthew 21 to 29 uh, in my particularly conclusion, I'm going to also refer from verse 24 to 29. And also, I'm going to touch a little bit on Numbers 12, verse 1 to 10. Now, I'm going to share with you main three points in my message. One is context. And why context is important sometimes when we read Bible... It is possible that we take that passage out of context. And that's why context is very, very important. When Jesus said this word recorded by Matthew, right? We need to first actually dig in the word, in the context and say, why Jesus said this? What was the main purpose? Second part in this passage, Jesus actually shared his concern. So that's the main point of the second, uh, sorry, second point of my message. And the third one is conclusion. That's called application. What I would take from these verses? What is for me? So first is context. Matthew chapter 5 to 7 demonstrates what Jesus was teaching about God's kingdom. Matthew chapter 7 verse 21 to 29 is not an isolated passage. But from Matthew chapter 5 to chapter 7 is a one whole teaching of Jesus Christ. And we call it Sermon on Mount. So what is the real big theme or the main theme of this whole passage? The word kingdom appears 54 times in the book of Matthew. More than any other book in the Bible. In this book, Jesus preaches that kingdom is at hand. He shows us what the kingdom is, who is in it, what you should do if you are in the kingdom, and the blessings of the kingdom. One of the commentators, his name is Del C. Elishan, bring this out when he sums up his examination of the structure of the sermon on Mount from chapter 5 to 7. He put this way. The Sermon on the Mount sets forth God's grace in the past, chapter 4, 
from verse 23 to chapter 5 verse 2. In the present chapter 6 verse 25 to 34 and chapter 7 verse 7 to 11. And in the future chapter 5 from verse 3 to verse 12. And this is the context in which we should read and understand verse 21 to 23. So it is about the kingdom of God. It is about when we claim that I am a believer, I am a part of this kingdom, then what should be my life? How should I live? It's not just a moral ethic. Or ticking some boxes that I should not do that, I should not do that, I should not do that, I should do that. No. It's a lifestyle. Another commentator, it's, his name is Amos uh, Wilder, was right on target when he wrote that Matthew chapter 5 was, uh, sorry, five, chapter 5 to 7 offers not so much ethics of obedience as ethics of grace. We miss the point if we see the Sermon on the Mount as nothing other than series of far-reaching demands. Demands are there. But the love and the mercy of God are there too. And that's why this morning I want to encourage all of you to see in this Verses how God is gracious. It is significant that this sermon begins with beatitudes rather than imperatives. Jesus will go on to make great demands on his followers, but these demands are to be understood in a context of grace. Dr. Martin Lord Jones. He wrote, it is a kingdom which is to come. Yes. But it is also a kingdom which has come. The kingdom of God is among you and within you. The kingdom of God is in every true Christian. He reigns in the church when church acknowledges him truly. The kingdom has come. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is yet to come. Now we must always bear that in mind. Whenever Christ is enthroned as king, the kingdom of God is come. So that while we cannot say that he is ruling over all in the world at the present time, he is certainly ruling in that way in the hearts and lives of all his people. The Sermon on the Mount describes the righteous character of the kingdom, citizen, one who is living in the kingdom as it exists in its mystery phase here and now. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus went to great pains to emphasize the spiritual elements of the kingdom. Another servant of the God, D.A. Carson. He observed, the unifying theme of the sermon is the kingdom of heaven. For example, the theme of the kingdom envelops the beatitudes. The first beatitude is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs 
is the kingdom of heaven. And that's why I said context is very, very important. I can jump easily on the verses and give you some kind of application that you should do that, you should do that, but that's called injustice. And if you read chapter 5 to 7, finally, at the close of the Sermon on the Mount, the theme of kingdom is closely aligned with salvation. Matthew 7, verse 13 to 14. Jesus alone decrees who will enter into the kingdom. And that's exactly we are going to look. Chapter 7, verse 21 to 23. So this passage is not about something that we should just not do or do. It is about the kingdom of God. And when we believe in Christ... He is king and we are part of his kingdom and we are the citizen of his kingdom. Chapter 7, verse 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only who, only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not profess in your name? And in your name dry out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you, he will do us. Now, when Jesus said this word, he was not saying to actually... Gentiles. There were few Gentiles there when Jesus was speaking. But mainly, many called disciples. And we know that Bible tells some disciples left him, some stayed. So people actually who wanted to follow Christ, wanted to do many things. Even many priests, many scribes. The people who were actually learned in Jewish scripture, who were really searching scripture and waiting for Messiah, they knew their scripture. They were teaching scriptures to Jewish people. And that's why it's very important that we need to look at what was the concern Jesus is saying here. So my second point is concerns. Matthew chapter 7 verse 21 to 29 is divided in two parts. The first section 21 to 23 addresses a problem with a group of people. The second 24 to 29 serves as the conclusion to the first great teaching block in Matthew, in Sermon on the Mount. Here Jesus gives us a preview of last judgment. He says that people will come to him addressing him by the title Lord, L capital. They will say to Jesus, Lord, we did many marvelous things in your name. We served you. We preach in your name. 
We cast out demons. We did all of these things. Jesus said, I will turn to these people and say, please leave me alone. Sometimes we do say, no? Not only will he say, I don't know you, but I never knew you. You workers of lawlessness. And that's a judgment. That's a judgment. What is particularly heartbreaking about this terrifying warning? Is that he begins by saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Then he repeats that by saying, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord. It's a repetition. The terrifying aspect of this is that these people are immersed in the life of the church, heavily involved in ministry, perhaps have the reputation of being professing Christians, and yet it is disastrous and danger that Jesus would tell, I never knew you. And I don't want to make you sad this morning by sharing this. But definitely I want to encourage you. Because when the whole Trinity involved in the life of someone who come to know Christ and born again, theologically, Bible tells us God the Father elect, God the Son justify, and God the Holy Spirit sanctify. And the Spirit lives in us. The spirit of truth and spirit of conviction. Holy Spirit convicts us every day, every second about our sin. Then he leads us in the repentance. And that's why repentance is not only a once upon a time or one day in the life. Or by a few years back, praying some prayer, a small prayer that I'm sorry Lord and it's good. We should do that. I'm not denying that is wrong. But what I'm saying, it's not just a once upon a time. It's the beginning. And every day, Holy Spirit sanctifies us, making us new in Christ. God's purpose and God's plan and God's aim is not actually that we do many ministry. Ministry is important in the church. But the important thing, what Paul says in Romans 11, sorry, Romans chapter 8, God wants us to be like Christ. Every person in the church. That is his purpose. Yes, I agree that he came to forgive our sin. But that's if we stop there, what we are doing basically, it's called self-deception. Everyone wants that. If you ask someone, do you want to go to heaven? Yes. If you go and ask someone, do you want to go to hell? No. No one wants to suffer. But the reality is, do you have that assurance that on the last day when we stand before God, before Jesus, Jesus said, well done. Faithful servant. That's something we need in our life. Assurance. We don't want that Jesus would say, I never knew you. Because it is a very dangerous thing. Because we cannot go back. 
There won't be any rest period. It's a come finish. Judgment means finish. Now, I like to share two main concerns in this passage. That's what I think um, Jesus is basically sharing. First is called self-deception. What is self-deception? Self-deception means we believe and we all have our worldview we call. So we have certain kind of beliefs. I came from Indian background and I'm brought up in a Christian family, but very nominal uh, Christian family. God gave me his grace in 97 and I came to know Christ. But I must confess that I really didn't have that relationship with Christ. I believed that I accepted Christ. I believe that God has forgiven me, but I was not walking with him. So I was living in this self-deception. I'm right because I have prayed that prayer. I have confessed my sin. Yes, Bible tells me when you confess, and that is true. I'm not denying that truth. God forgiven me, but I did not have that intimate relationship or the right relationship with Christ. So I was living in that self-deception. But thank God that coming to Australia and then God provided uh, many good believers, friends, and God really working in my life, and still he is at work. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Christ describes how there will be some who stand before him on the day of judgment and call him Lord, Lord, but will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Certainly there is nothing wrong with the profession. Means we, we profess and say, Lord, Lord. Romans chapter 12, 10 and verse 13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Every true believer calls Christ Lord. So nothing wrong in that one. But the profession is particular on many fronts. Number one, by calling Christ Lord, it was courteous, respectful. We do give Christ respect. So sometimes we have that deception. Second thing, by calling him Lord, it represented orthodox theology. As it probably refers to his deity, the Greek word can simply mean sir. So when we say Lord, we respect, right? We acknowledge him as God. It was commonly used in the Septuagint, it's a Greek translation of Old Testament, for the word Yahweh. This person knew that Christ was more than a man, he was God. So that is possibility. In our life also, we call him as Lord, we call him Christ, Jesus, and we acknowledge him as God. The fact that Lord is repeated twice means that it was fervent and passionate. It also seems to be a public profession. As it was done on the day of judgment. Again, this confession is particular because it was in the public. And many times I know, and nothing wrong to confess him or say, Lord, Lord, 
in the public. But what is the issue? Most of you have heard the Bible, good Bible teacher, John Stott. John Stott said this about the profession. What better Christian profession could be given? Here are people who call Jesus Lord with courtesy, orthodoxy, and enthusiasm. In private devotion and in public ministry. What can be wrong with this? In itself nothing. And yet everything is wrong because it is talk without truth, profession without reality. It will not save them on the day of judgment. The problem with this orthodox profession is that it is by itself. Simply belief without act of the will does not save us. James said that even in the demons believe there is one God. James chapter 2 verse 19. They are monotheistic and yet are not saved. Demons have orthodox faith but are not part of the kingdom. Another, another commentator, his name is Kent Hughes. And he put it this way. All two Christians say, Lord, Lord. But not all who say, Lord, Lord, are true Christians. Intellectual orthodoxy does not indicate saving faith. You can be absolutely correct in your belief about Christ's nature and person. His subsidiary atonement. His resurrection. And his return. You can have even fought against heretics and yet not be truly saved. And that's why new birth is a biggest miracle in this world. And I heard many times people rejoice when someone gets actually healed by any sickness and thank God and I rejoice. But one thing I learned in my life and God taught me I have the most heavenly joy when I see someone coming in the kingdom, repenting in sin, confessing and believing the Christ. And God gave me in my life, and I thank God, it's not me, that many lives change. And that's why Bible says when one sinner repents, the whole heaven rejoices. This is important to hear because something that orthodox belief alone saves. What is orthodox belief means? Born and brought up in Christian family, many generations, 20, 30, 2, 4, whatever. Right? Having a Bible in the house, reading every day, having a certain habit, it's good. I'm not projecting that. But having that life for many, many years, but there is a possibility, may not have the right and personal and intimate relationship with Christ. And that's something Jesus actually telling us. Some commentator says this is, it's called free grace theology. I pray the prayer, three, four minutes or five minutes, someone lead me, believe, 
and then I go in the world. It's called free grace theology. Salvation does not come by intellectual belief alone. There is no true salvation without discipleship, taking up one's cross, and following Christ wholeheartedly. Self-righteous approach, God's commands like defense, attorney, attorney means lawyers, looking for the loopholes. Self-righteous are more concerned that other people think them pious, but they really don't care what God thinks about them, or they have a little importance. And that's why Jesus said to the Pharisee in Luke chapter 17, verse 15. You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of man, but God knows your heart. For that which is highly esteemed among man is detestable in the sight of God. Again, I want to refer Martin Lloyd-Jones. He wrote, What are blessed Lord wants above all is ourselves. What scripture calls our hearts? He wants the inner man, the heart. He wants our submission. He does not want merely our profession, our zeal, our fervor, our works, or anything else. He wants us. God does not want our offerings. He does not want our sacrifices. He wants our obedience. And that's why when Jesus actually concluded in chapter 7, giving us the parable of two people who build their house, one on the um, sand and one on the rock, Jesus is saying about if we do not have that right relationship with Christ, then we don't have anything. He, wa- he wants us, it is possible for a man to say the right things, to be very busy and active, to achieve apparently wonderful results, and yet not to give himself to the Lord. And that is finally the greatest insult we can offer to God. What could be greater insult, says Lord Jones, than to say, Lord, Lord, fervently to be busy and active and yet to withhold true alliance and submission to him to insist upon retaining control of our lives and to allow our own opinions and arguments rather than those of the scripture to control what we do and how we do it. So that's the first concern Jesus says is called self-deception. We may have that. But thank God that God hasn't given up on us. He's still gracious. Second thing Jesus in this context is telling us about the deceived by false prophets. We are living in a generation right now that all over the world there are many false prophets and teachers. Now we are not here to judge someone. But it is very, very important that Bible actually talks about false teachers and false prophets. Even Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus told about 
at the last days or judgment about his coming in the world, he mentions specifically that there will be a false prophets and teachers and miracle workers in those days. And we all believe that we are living in those last days. And that's why very important. And if I thank God for internet, but internet also dangerous. It's good tool that we can get good sermon. But again, it's very important. We are just don't feel, oh, I listen sermon, oh, I listen. No, what are we listening? Prosperity gospel, some kind of healing that someone is preaching and if I touch the TV and then I believe that I'm going to be healed and I'm not saying that God doesn't use that. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying, what is the top priority in my life? Knowing him. These false believers also profess many mighty works done in the name of the Christ. They prophesied, cast out demons, did many powerful deeds. Certainly this professor could have been lying or the works. They did could have been done through demonic power. And that's something I think a little bit challenging for us because... In my life also, one stage I thought that God is good God, is a holy God, so is only with the pious people or the holy people. And that is true, but God can use anyone. And there are a lot of um, events recorded in the Bible. When God called Moses, we know the story that this Pharaoh sorcerers, they also did some miracles. Right? Second, I want actually, this is for your homework. Jesus appointed 12 apostles. Was Jesus really knew when he appointed, appointed 12 apostles that Judas would betray him? Right? Think about it. And if Jesus already knew, even though he appointed him. And Mark chapter 3 tells us that Jesus prayed whole night and then he appointed 12 and gave them the authority. So Judah also had authority. This was true of Judas who wasn't truly saved and ultimately betrayed Christ. Christ empowered the disciples including Judas to preach the good news, cast out demons and perform miracles. Judas performed these works and yet wasn't truly a believer. In Old Testament, God anointed Balaam, a prophet of Baal, to bless Israel and give a prophecy about the coming of Messiah. Right? Christ. Numbers chapter 23. Read that chapter and you will find out. In Jesus' time, Caiaphas, high priest, who helped put Christ to death, but he also prophesies about Christ's coming. And this is something we need to learn. That Jesus 
in those days had a concern and today also have that same concern that we should not deceived by the false prophets and false uh, miracle workers and false teacher in ad 100 after jesus resurrected and um, apostle preach uh, the gospel shared the gospel many people came to know christ and ultimately church had been formed what they did in the beginning it was beginning to try to help itself to stay away from false prophets and so in they called this particularly method its name didak d i d a c h that's a section where the church instructed itself as to how to deal with false prophets it uses a term to describe them and term is christemo poros and that greek word means christ merchants so early church even they were very serious and aware about the false teaching and if you actually study church history you will find out many uh, heresies came many false teacher came in the church and one stage it was a really big challenge for early church because many false teachers and prophets that time they said that christ is not god because he was created and heresy came but thank god that god raised many uh, true believers to defend the, our faith how we can identify these false teachers and false prophets in our time number 1 when you hear sermon or when you meet you will be able to see that if they are not glorifying god they can use jesus name they can use god name they can use bible even but if something if you would find for their own glory immediately you would say they are not the godly true prophets and teachers now what would be the conclusion for us then jesus talks about the final judgment jesus talks about his concern so what is for us how can we be assured that jesus knows us what are the signs do we find anything in the scripture that gives us assurance or just a feeling feeling is important can be deceptive because word of god is very clear and gives us number 1 obedience to god's word because jesus says in verse 21 second part <clears throat> i'm going to read the whole verse not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter into the kingdom of heaven only the one who does the will of my father in heaven how can we know the will of god bible is not just a religious book it is a revealed will of god yes i agree bible speak through his people bible speak sometimes through dream bible 
uh, sorry, God speaks through his people, God speaks sometimes through dream, I agree, I'm not denying that. But primarily, God speaks with us through his word. So when we read our Bible, it's important that we read, understand, listen, and then obey. John chapter 14, verse 21. Whoever has my commands keeps them. He, it is, who loves me. There are many passages. Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Are we really responding to the word of God? Second sign is, Repentance. Jesus said in verse, chap, uh, sorry, Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you lawbreakers. So all these people, they were doing ministry, miracles, many things, prophecy, but they were not really obeying the word of God. Submission. So Jesus called them lawbreakers. Jesus is not here talking about someone who sins. Every person sins, including true believers, we all. Christ referred to those practicing a lifestyle of unrepentant sin, the very fact that someone who professes Christ fights against their sin, seeks to repent and continually gets right with God, is an assurance of their salvation. I tell you one thing, Holy Spirit cannot keep born again Christian in sin. We do sin. But when we sin, Holy Spirit convicts us. And I have experienced in my life, until we repent, John MacArthur, one of the good Bible teachers, and my wife actually loves him. When a couple lives together without being married, when a person practices homosexuality, is deceptive and dishonest in, in, a, dishonest in business, is hateful or habitually practices any sin without remorse or repentance, such person cannot be Christian no matter what sort of experience they claim to have had or what sort of testimony they now make. Because God's word is clear. We are not judging them. But this is a reality and we can be in that situation. Number three sign if we are true Christian, we are born again, we reflect God's character. Why? Let me read Second Peter chapter 1. 
His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, with virtue knowledge, knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. And now what Peter is saying, listen carefully. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten, that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. And for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. So Bible does say that we should have assurance. And the last sign is perseverance we all actually have a different kind of situation in our life sometimes happy sometimes sad sometimes we go through sickness hardship many challenges someone says life is not rosy rosy right we all like that actually smooth no and all of you know I have experienced last year that sudden, sudden us. But I can tell you one thing. God that time came so powerfully, spoke with me from Psalms. And God says, whoever offers the sacrifice of thanksgiving glorifies me. And when doctor called me and told me this, I won't say good, a bad news, I would say good news, that their diagnosis that I had a cancer, and immediately I said, God, thank you. It was not me, but God came and gave me the word from Psalms. And even today, I and Jyoti and whole family, we are thanking God. But again, God sustain us. That's something we need to understand. It's called sustaining grace. So when we go through those situations, are we experiencing that sustaining grace? God may not change that situation immediately. God told Paul actually, my grace is sufficient for you. God didn't heal Paul. But God healed many people through Paul. And that's something we need to learn. So if we really perceive in our trial, 
that's a sign that we are his people 150 years ago there was a great revival in wells many missionary from that part came to northeast india to spread the gospel and the place called assam is a beautiful place and they started sharing the gospel there but in those days in assam almost now more than maybe 200 years the people they were tribal people they did not understand anything but god opened the hearts of one a man and this man actually came to know christ and accepted christ as his personal savior now when a chief of that village actually came to know and all the villagers they were angry so they caught this man and then he said to him that either you renounce your faith or will kill you the first sentence came from his mouth i have decided to follow jesus the chief was very angry and he said i'm going to kill your two boys and they killed his two boys and he said if you don't renounce now i will kill your wife and then he said though no one joins me still i will follow chief of that village was very angry furious and he killed his wife but before he killed his wife he said i'll give you still one opportunity to renounce and the man said the cross before me the world behind me no turning back and he was killed his wife was killed but now if you go to that place assam the majority of people there they are christian believed in the lord jesus christ and the song now they call is called the song of garo people i have decided to follow jesus but when we decide to follow jesus we need to actually put everything aside otherwise that day jesus would tell us i never knew you and the end would be dangerous because all our life sometimes we live in a self deception it will be disastrous why there was there won't be any opportunity that we can say sorry jesus no it's finished and it will be deadly and because you know where we would end up so my prayer is that god may give us his grace to know him not just to know about him but to know him and having that personal intimate 
right relationship and walking him every day. God bless you.